From the Pulliam Center for Contemporary Media at DePaul University, I'm JNP, and this is Modern Media. My guest today is Professor Siva Vadianathan. We discuss his latest book, Anti-Social Media, How Facebook Disconnects Us and Undermines Democracy, in which he explores the ways that Facebook in particular, with its penchant for highlighting the extreme elements of our political discourse, represents a serious threat to our collective ability to govern ourselves and to think through the most pressing social and political issues that confront us today. Facebook is designed to dial down the impact of the reasonable, the sober, the measured, the deliberative, and dial up the impact of the extreme. Sipa Vadianathan is a professor of media studies at the University of Virginia, where he also serves as the director of the Center for Media and Citizenship. Sipa Vadianathan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to be here and uh, be part of this conversation. Well, thanks so much. And again, thank you for this book. I, I really enjoyed this book. I've enjoyed a lot of your books, and uh, this one seemed so timely uh, and useful. <laughs> if for nothing else, explaining to people that I know and, uh, you know, family members and friends, you know, here's something you should think about when you're thinking about Facebook and social media in general and, and the politics of what's going on today. So right. I guess I want to start with a really simple question, maybe a stupid question, um, but what made you want to embark on this book? Well, so, I, you know, I teach a couple of classes that um, sort of relevant to the issues that ended up in the book. So I teach a, teach a class called Privacy and Surveillance. I've taught it at multiple levels. I've taught it to law students, taught it to undergrad students for years. And of course, every year that course changes because there's some big event or technology or social phenomenon that brings new light to the questions of how we are being watched and how we might resist being watched, right? And what, and what the law says about um, how we might resist being watched. <clears throat> so I've been collecting stuff about Facebook since Facebook was created. I didn't think I had a book in me or <laughs> more importantly, a book in my notes. Um, but I had been you know, steadily collecting academic papers, uh, summaries of academic books, lecture notes, uh, magazine and newspaper articles over the years and and paying attention to it around the world, like not just American stuff. And again, largely this was to inform my teaching. You know, I, I've taught other classes like Introduction to Digital Media. The first year I taught it, I think I mentioned the word Facebook one day <laughs> of the semester. By the last time I taught it, it it had taken up a month of the of the course, right? Um, you know, I, I had taught it in the spring of 2000. 11 when there were uprisings in Tunisia and Egypt and that changed the course entirely right so I had you know I had all this stuff in my computer that um, and 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 printed out in my files right and uh, and then after the election of 2016 you know we all had a lot of questions about how that came down um, you know how did how did the Donald Trump campaign manage to gather enough electoral votes while still losing the popular vote by three, three million yeah. and, and, and sort of so precisely flip Michigan, Wisconsin and Pennsylvania uh, by such narrow margins. I mean, a total of 80,000 votes over those three States and, you know, the, the university of Michigan football stadium fits a hundred thousand. Yeah. Right. So, you know, I mean, that's just, that's, that's an amazingly slim margin. Yeah. So, so, like, you know, I was, I was talking to, to some friends after the election, and I was positing this idea that, 
you know, one of the things that the Trump campaign had going for it was that it had sort of beginner's mind, right? No one who worked for the Trump campaign had any experience running a national presidential campaign before. Uh, Trump had not been able to hire any of the veterans of the Republican Party, and he had, you know, they had alienated him, he had alienated them. You know, Paul Manafort was the only veteran they could find, right? And so what, what he had going for him were uh, uh, were a number of people who had worked for the Trump organization, primarily doing social media marketing. Mm-hmm. And if you do social media marketing, which is not complicated, you understand the power of Facebook. You understand that you can take a Facebook ad system and you can try 10 different versions of an ad on the same zip code or the same congressional district um, or the same block and figure out which of these 10 versions work, which of these 10 versions work better for men, which work better for women, which of these 10 versions work better for people who care more about guns or more about abortion. And you can run all these experiments and it costs almost nothing to do, right? So mm. so through Facebook, the Trump campaign was able to very carefully, almost surgically move voters mostly from being demotivated to being motivated. In some cases from being motivated, for instance, to vote for Hillary Clinton, to being demotivated and to stay home, right? And and that, that combination, that precision that Facebook offers, the 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 inexpense, right? The, the the fact that Facebook ads cost so much less than any other form of advertising, that appealed to, you know, Trump himself, who's notoriously cheap, <laughs> right? And and the fact, look, remember the campaign had very little money compared to the Clinton campaign. The campaign ran almost no television ads in major swing states. And this was, you know, the reporters who were used to covering political campaigns were all saying, you know, well, Trump's giving up on, you know, on Pennsylvania, right? Or on Florida, right? Because he's just not running ads. Well, he was, they Mm -hmm. just couldn't see them. And I thought, okay, I can write a book about how Trump used Facebook to swing the Electoral College. But you know, it's a it's an instant book, right? It's a it's a book that doesn't have literally doesn't have shelf life. Um, I wanted to tell the global story, and I wanted to tell the deeper story and the, the ways that Facebook affects democracy. And remember, democracy is not my candidate wins, right? Mm-hmm. My democracy is not um, harmed by the fact that one candidate used Facebook better than the other. I think democracy, in Facebook's case, is harmed by the fact that. Uh, the the style of political communication is increasingly invisible to citizens, and so so we're not able, and 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 reporters are not able to question or even observe the communication between candidates and voters mm-hmm. if it's done through Facebook. So that's that's one of many issues uh, that motivated me to do this book. But it really was like this notion, right? The election just happened. It's a monumental election. It's a world shaking election. How do I contribute to our understanding of the moment? Yeah, it turned out I had all these notes and yeah. I was able to like to line them up and and turn them into chapters and lay them out on my floor and just start writing. That answers the question for me is how this book got written so quickly. Okay. Right? <laughs> <laughs> because, because it did seem to happen very, very quickly. And I and I um I was struck also by the structure of the book. So you talk about the different sort of machines in which yeah. Facebook sort of represents pleasure, attention, benevolence. So it seemed like there was an arc to this book almost like that. We know Facebook provides us a certain amount of pleasure, but here's right. what that pleasure is about. Yeah. Um, were you thinking about it in terms of that kind of arc of like, we're going to get from the basic thing that people use to here's what it really comes down to? Well, it turned out that way. So look, every every book editor wants to see that. And academics usually don't 
line their books up in that yeah. way, right? Well, we usually um, throw together some revision of an academic article we've done, and yeah. and and they're all generally about the same subject, and we string them together and and hope that people can actually read from beginning to end. Yeah. But but you know, this book was intended to go beyond the academy, beyond the university. It was intended so my mom would like it and mm-hmm. be into it, and it would you know, uh, hopefully shift the conversation in the country a little bit and, and in the world, because I wanted this explicitly to be a, a global book, too. I didn't want it to be about the United States yeah. per se. I wanted all of the issues I brought up to be just as relevant in India and Australia and Indonesia and South Africa and Brazil as they are, as it is in, in the United States. So one of the things that I kept in mind is um, if I were to teach an entire semester class on Facebook, which I've never done, how would I want to walk students through the way Facebook works in the world. Because to do so, there's a lot of technical stuff I would have to explain, but I need to be able to build, you know, what the uh, what, what education researchers call scaffolding. Build a foundation of understanding. Why, why are there 2.3 billion Facebook users? These are not fools. These, these are people who are getting something out yeah. of it, right? So let's talk about it. That's where I get the pleasure machine from because we do get pleasure. We get utility as well. There's, mm-hmm. a, you know, there's a lot of practical use to Facebook. And, uh, but I wanted to be very clear about the fact that, that there is a lot of pleasure at a low level, right? The, I think I compare it to, to potato chips, right? Potato mm-hmm. chips give you pleasure, but they don't give you the kind of pleasure that a trip to Paris gives you or yeah. even a fabulous cupcake gives you, right? It's a, it's a low-level, inexpensive pleasure that makes your day a little bit better makes your health a little bit worse, but makes your day a little bit better, right? Much like Facebook, right? So, uh, so, and, and much like Potato Chips, Facebook is designed to keep you coming back. It is designed explicitly to make you miss it when you turn it off and make you get that itch so you want to look at your phone again in five minutes. Mm-hmm. And anytime you're bored, you'll reach for it without thinking, the same way you might reach for a bag of potato chips sitting on the coffee table if you're not paying much attention to what you're doing, right? That is how a lot of things in our society are designed. Uh, casinos are designed along those lines. Snack foods are designed along those lines. Social media platforms are de- designed along those lines. Our entire uh, smartphone is designed to keep you hooked, right? So, so all of this is explicitly built in. So, I, I, you know, but that, that's, a, that's a key foundation. Once you understand that, then you can move on to some of those other questions. Okay, why and how does Facebook watch everything you do? Um, why and how does Facebook become a factor in politics? Why and how is Facebook able to make so much money? These are all questions that are all dependent on the fact that they're able to keep 2.3 billion people and growing uh, hooked on their service. So one of the things that struck me was the chapter on benevolence because so much of what I hear about Facebook is, you know, well, it does so much good, right? The, right. the um, ice bucket challenge, right. uh, it gets, it gets you, makes you aware. And so my students, when I talk to them, what's good and what's bad about it, they always go to the good. It makes me aware of what's going on in the world. Sure. It keeps me connected. And the thing that I was most struck about was this notion of um, this, this service called Free Basics. Right. Right. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what that's about and sure. the sort of problems of that. So imagine you're Mark Zuckerberg, right? And you've, you've invented this thing that's making you a lot of money. But, you know, the money came so easily, came so quickly that you don't even have to worry about the money. I mean, imagine being that rich that you can actually not care about money, right? That's how rich he is, right? That's how easily the money came to him from the first day, right? From the very dawn of the idea, venture capital money kept flowing in. 
more came later. And then when the company went public, its stock has done nothing but rise, uh, except in 2018 when it started getting shaky. Uh, nonetheless, you know, it, 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 this is a story of a person who is so rewarded by accolades, by attention, and by monetary reward that he can't help but believe he is doing something good for the world. And he is able to say that uh, everything he does is motivated by this notion that he's connecting the species, connecting human beings to each other. Uh, and he, as he says, m most recently, building community, right? So these become, these become the models, the justification, the explanation, the, mo the motivation for what he is doing in his company. He won't ever say the purpose of this company is to make a tremendous amount of money by uh, harvesting personal information and turning that personal information into precisely targeted advertisements to sell more shoes. That's actually what Facebook does to make money, but that's not the purpose, right? General Motors sells cars, right? Yeah. Their purpose is to move cars off of lots into people's uh, lives and make money, right? Yeah. And return money to their shareholders, right? And nobody pretends otherwise, right? Uh, and yet, Facebook, like many Silicon Valley companies, has this veneer or this layer of benevolence attached to it or on top of it. And and that's how they talk and think in that industry. It's really bizarre to me. And so any any use of Facebook that seems like it might help someone becomes something that they take deep pride in and they build it into their own self-image. So I mentioned 2011, the uprisings in Tunisia and Egypt. Well, in Egypt specifically, most people did not have access to Facebook. Mm -hmm. Almost nobody did, actually. Almost nobody had access to Twitter. Uh, Facebook had only come out in Arabic a year earlier, and Twitter was not yet out in Arabic. Uh, but there were a lot of people tweeting about what was going on in those two countries and posting on Facebook about what was going on in those countries. But largely, it was for the benefit of us, for people who lived outside of Northern Africa and who had no other way of knowing what's going on. The only global news service that was covering that event, those events was Al Jazeera, and that was primarily in Arabic. So if you didn't speak Arabic, you had no way of knowing if you weren't on Twitter what was going on. So, so of course, you know, CNN, BBC, they are all scouring Twitter and reporting on what they see on Twitter. So they assume that everything here is a social media revolution. Mm -hmm. Well, look, Zuckerberg was more than happy to give people that impression, uh, but the numbers just don't bear it up, and there just weren't enough people using it compared to the number of people in Tahrir Square or in the you know in the streets of, of Tunis. So, given all of that, we had this for a long time. We've let him let Facebook get away with this vision that it is actually connecting human beings, that it's actually improving our lives building community, all of these cliches, when in fact, it's done just the opposite. It's really frayed social bonds. It's so clearly carrying and amplifying messages that tear us apart, that rip at our foundations and our common humanity much more effectively than any of the beneficial stuff. So the beneficial stuff is there because human beings work really hard to keep it there. Uh, and look, the beneficial stuff at the, at the sort of micro level is definitely there, right? The the fact that I have, I put up pictures of my dog and people love pictures of my dog and it makes them feel good. That's great, right? That my mother knows where I am largely by following me on Facebook, right? So all that's true, right? We stay in touch with elementary school friends. We stay in touch with distant relatives. We might never contact otherwise, right? At low cost. All of that is true, but 
But in the scale of things, we have to ask ourselves, is that level of convenience really worth the damage that we do to ourselves and others through Facebook? When they introduce something like free basics there, in some ways it sounds good, right? Free basics. That, yeah. that can't be bad. Right. And yet it seems to fly in the face of things that we actually do hold dear, like net neutrality, right? right? So, so, I mean, yeah, look, if, if follow me, if, if Facebook is good for many people, maybe Facebook is good for most people, maybe Facebook is good for all people, but not all people can afford a data plan on their phones, right? Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, most of the people in the world cannot. The way that we pay for data plans in the United States is, of course, we essentially pay a bill at the end of the month because we qualify for credit. We have a, a working credit system, and you go into Sprint or AT&T, and you get a phone, and you, know, you, you pay for a phone basically on credit, right? You pay it off over time. It gets built into your bill. You pay the bill at the end of every month. Uh, and if you have poor credit, you have to have some other option. You, you pay up front uh, for the minutes. And that's really how most of the world works because most of the world does not have a credit system to even monitor, right? Most people don't have access to any form of credit. And so in most of the world, they are paying up front every month for a certain number of minutes of talk time, text messages they can send, and data. And data is the most expensive of it, and it's the one that's most easily burned through. So Mark Zuckerberg looked at this situation and said, if we are ever going to bring the wonders of Facebook slash the internet, and they're not the same thing, to Sub-Saharan Africa, to Southeast Asia, we are going to have to figure out a different way. So he created a philanthropic wing of Facebook that he called internet.org. And that's weird because like .org implies that it's like a global uh, non-governmental organization, not affiliated with Facebook or with a company, but in fact it is. And internet, of course, is a pretty bold <laughs> term to put in charge. Right? And so the, the impression he wanted to give was we are donating internet access to people who might otherwise not have it. And that means that, you know, women can start up small businesses using their phones uh, and their phones will have a calculator on it and have an ability to communicate and maybe run spreadsheets. But they need data to be able to do all that, right? So this was a way of spreading wealth uh, uh, and sort of working with a bunch of other efforts to empower um, working people and mostly women in, in developing nations. So to do this, they created a suite of applications called Free Basics. And Facebook went around to different internet service providers or telecom companies in developing nations, in Sub-Saharan Africa, in Southeast Asia, and South Asia. And they said, look, if you can sell a phone that has free basics on it as a primary interface, the place people will go first, we will subsidize their internet access. So as long as you're using, the people are using one of these apps, and it, it includes Facebook and WhatsApp and well, Wikipedia access, and there's usually something there for agricultural information, for health information uh, in the local language, maybe in, uh, some sort of interface with the state. If you use all, just those apps, it will not count against the data that you purchased. Now, what that means is for most people, they're just not going to purchase any data. And the entire experience of working through digital media will be through Facebook products. Uh, and that's exactly what's happened in the Philippines, in Indonesia, in Myanmar, in Sri Lanka, in Pakistan, in much of Africa. Most people who are using 
their data-intensive phones, their smartphones, are using it through free, free basics. And therefore, Facebook is everything. It is the way to communicate. Facebook and WhatsApp, which is owned by yeah. Facebook. Right? So it's a, it was, it, you could look at it from like a colonial model. This was a great way to like slide into people's lives and make them addicted to your product and they'll never break out of it. Uh, you could also look at it as a philanthropic experiment, uh, one that has in fact cost Facebook a lot more than it has made them today, but, you know, <laughs> as the economy of the Philippines, the economy of Sri Lanka grows over the next century, you know, it's not a bad bet, right? The, if you're, if you've cornered the world of online advertising in a country like the Philippines or Indonesia, a massive country uh, that's growing in its economy and population, is, it, it's a pretty good deal, right? Plus, you're dominant in so much of the world when you do that, right? So, so you could look at it both ways. But the fact is, and what really matters, is that in much of the world, Facebook is the only major medium for person-to-person -person conversation, person-to-person communication, and for mass what we used to call mass media, right? The distribution of things like news and entertainment. It's all coming through Facebook now in much of the world. Hmm. And that should concern us because Facebook has certain attributes that favor the sorts of content that can really tear us apart. And, and what kind of content is that? How would you describe yeah. that? Facebook works by a principle of algorithmic amplification. When you post something on Facebook, you know how you're itching to see within five minutes whether anyone liked it or commented <laughs> on it, right? You want that instant feedback. Well, that's just what's happening to you. What's happening within Facebook is Facebook is looking at the fact that what you posted is getting comments, is getting clicks, shares, likes, and, and and that what's generally called engagement signals to Facebook, this is a hot topic. This is the sort of thing people care about. So if you're posting something that people care about, it's a signal to Facebook, well, okay, it's time to put this in as many news feeds as possible. So if you have 500 friends or 5,000 friends and you post something that gets a tremendous number of comments, it's going to it's going to exponentially hit more people's feeds. And those people might share it intentionally on their own feeds, in which case it would hit even more people. So if I posted today, like posted an article from uh, The Economist, and it was a sort of well-thought-out, well-reported story about the current Italian government and the ways that the turmoil in the Italian government might severely alter monetary policy in the European Union, right? Snooze. Right? But it's it's like valuable stuff, and it's an important issue, but, you know, not sexy. Uh, it's going to get no commentary. Like, no one's going to care. I might have a few friends who are really into Italian politics who might, like, click like on it or read it, but it's just not going to go anywhere. And that's true of the, any serious issue, right? Post a scholarly article or even, a like, a, a, a sober article about a, something in the world that's not hot and controversial, it's going to sink like a stone on Facebook. But if I put something wacky on Facebook, right, like something about how vaccines are dangerous, right? Completely unfounded, completely wrong. Uh, and if I were to put that on my Facebook page, I would get hundreds of comments within an hour. And most of them would be negative. Most of them would be people telling me that I'm misguided, people putting links to uh, better information, people criticizing me for wanting to hurt children, like all kinds of stuff, right? And all that negative commentary just makes my post go farther. So to do that, right? So so imagine if instead of uh, uh, you know a conspiracy theory about vaccines, I put some sort of you know bigoted message, right? That there's some star-bellied sneeches are evil, right? Something like that, right? <laughs> and must be must be eliminated or must be blocked or build a wall to keep star-bellied sneeches out. If I did something like that, 
I would get similar response, right? There might be a few people who would cheer me on, uh, but most of my friends would say, wait a minute, this is wrong, right? But you do something that controversial, it rockets around. This is why things like hate speech, things like calls to genocide, like mm -hmm. in Myanmar, um, highly controversial, highly charged issues fly around Facebook. Facebook is designed to dial down the impact of the reasonable, the sober, the measured, the deliberative, and dial up the impact of the extreme. And they justify it by saying it's a measure of popularity and interest, but of course, look, we're suckers, right? We're weak animals, like we, we fall for all sorts of things. And, and the controversial stuff we can't help but click on and react to. So it's, it's not well designed for a society that desperately needs to think. Mm -hmm. And any democratic republic desperately needs to think. Its citizens have to be able to think about the issues of the day. We have to be able to ha judge each other and our leaders with uh, a certain measure of sobriety and calmness. And that's just not happening on Facebook. And of course, another thing that plagued Facebook over the years, or especially in the last few years, is this notion of fake news. And um, we had Craig Silverman on the show right. a little while ago talking about this. And I, you, you write a little bit about that, and you, you bring a new perspective to the concept of fake news and why that moniker right. might not be as useful as it seems. Sure, Can you sure, talk a little sure. bit about that? Well, look, the phrase itself, which Craig Silverman at BuzzFeed essentially popularized, yeah. he, he sort of I don't know that he really attributed it to that phenomenon before anybody, but he wrote the first major articles examining this phenomenon that there are these sites in the world, many of them coming from the former Soviet states, that are explicitly designed to look like legitimate news sources and that the content from them uh, tends to fly around Facebook quite effectively. Um, that is absolutely true. I'm concerned is that First of all, it's not the whole story. Uh, it's not even that important a part of the story, right? Because there are all sorts of things that fly around Facebook that go beyond that simple de definition. You could think of misinformation or disinformation coming in a lot of different forms. In the forms of just videos that people make on their own, in the forms of memes or, you know, just like images that are, that are doctored up or images with titles on them. Uh, you can think of things like just straight up claims like about vaccines yeah. or about climate science, right, that are completely unfounded, untrue and unscientific. That stuff flies around, right? Is that, does that fit what Craig Silverman was examining? Not exactly. Um, so it's a much larger problem, one of disinformation, misinformation, propaganda uh, and hyperbole. Um, and I think it's important to remember that you know, look, human beings have always been susceptible to believe things that were not true. And we've developed systems to try to do better collectively, right? If they're social systems like science, like journalism, right? The practices with standards, norms, they're imperfect, but it's all about the process. And that's how we have worked over the last couple centuries to establish some way of reaching this consensus thing that we call truth. It's a complicated thing, and we can't pretend it's simple. But what's, what we see happening with this flurry of nonsense, of garbage, flying around Facebook to a lesser extent, Twitter to almost as great an extent, YouTube, is that over time, 
it's not important as important that people believe false things, but the people stop believing that it matters that things are true or false, right? That we just get so exhausted by having to try to figure out what's true and what's false. Because remember, before Facebook, before Twitter, before YouTube, we generally made those decisions based on proxies. We relied on certain containers or or signals from the sources that we use. Like we were taught early on, like Encyclopedia Britannica is a very reliable source. That's what you and I were taught in school. Mm-hmm. It's it's not an original source, so maybe we don't want to cite it in the in certain places. But if you want to learn a fact, it's a good place to go. You want to learn a fact, there is a set of newspapers where professionals practice their craft. And they're not going to be perfect, and they're going to have problems. But over time, they will also gladly correct their problems. We were also taught that peer review in the sciences and in the academy at large is a, is a process through which we try to achieve a better sense of the truth. Uh, and that you can trust peer-reviewed work over non-peer-reviewed work. Um, we were taught that there that these signals are embedded in what we in what we see. Well, in the digital era, we have seen a complete breakdown in these signals in these containers. Right? We don't encounter information within those containers anymore. We don't go to the newsstand and pick up a copy of Time Magazine as much anymore. I mean, very yeah. few people do. And yet occasionally we come across an article from Time Magazine, but it looks a lot like an article from something else or for, like some person's webpage. And it's just really hard for us to use those cues anymore to decide what is true. It's a much bigger environmental challenge than just a matter of filtering for what is true versus what is false. Speaking of uh, what is true versus what is false, so you are also now a, uh, a, a columnist for The Guardian. Yeah. Right? Right. And uh, your first column came out, um, and it was about Cambridge Analytica and Facebook. And, of course, the narrative is that Cambridge Analytica was this um, uh, troublemaker. Right? right. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how – you read that and and why that's important to sure, understand. Sure, sure. Yeah, it was March of 2018 when um, the Observer, which is a, a, a sort of weekend version of the Guardian, a newspaper in England, collaborated with the New York Times to break a huge story where they had found and interviewed some insiders who had worked for this company called Cambridge Analytica, and they had found out the extent to which Cambridge Analytica, which is a London-based political consulting firm, had used. Facebook data to claim that it could effectively not only target certain voters in elections around the world, but also manipulate their behavior. So these were big claims that this company was making. And it turned out that they got all this Facebook data because they had been working with a researcher at at the University of Cambridge who had designed a quiz that a personality quiz that Facebook users were invited to take. And if you agreed to take this quiz, you agreed to basically open up your Facebook profile to the researcher. And that meant, and most people didn't understand this when they clicked on this, that they were also opening all their friends' information to these people. So even though a few thousand people took the Facebook quiz, 87 million Facebook profiles were available to this researcher and therefore later to Cambridge Analytica. So Cambridge Analytica, this London-based political consulting firm, 
uh, had control of all of this data for 87 million people around the world. And Cambridge Analytica had worked for some very nefarious political candidates around the world, including Kenyatta in Kenya, who's a brutal authoritarian. Cambridge Analytica had worked for Ted Cruz and Senator Ted Cruz and his attempt to secure the Republican nomination for president. And when they worked for the Cruz campaign, the Cruz campaign found that everything they were promising uh, was nonsense, that Cambridge Analytica could not, in fact, deploy this data in any effective way and could not, in fact, identify voters or move voter behavior, that they were selling snake oil. And the people who worked with Cambridge Analytica at the Cruz campaign remain bitter to this day that the campaign wasted so much money on this company. Nonetheless, this was a pretty huge thing that all this all this Facebook data went to this private company in England, right? Uh, later, Cambridge Analytica ended up working for the Trump campaign, but there's a lot uh, – basically, the people who work the digital side of the Trump campaign don't take it seriously either. They don't think Cambridge Analytica made, made a big difference. So why did this make a difference? And why did it make a difference when the news came out in 2018? Because all this work had been done in 2016. Well – what it showed was that this group that seemed to be run by a bunch of Bond villains, uh, you know, had all this private information on us, and that was of concern. But look, that wasn't new. That wasn't a new story. Like Facebook had been giving away all this data since at least 2011, uh, and it had been official policy. Anybody who builds an application on the Facebook platform had access to all this all this data. The Obama campaign in 2012 had access to more data than Cambridge Analytica had. But it became really hard to get people to worry about that because the story in 2012 was how clever the Obama campaign was at using Facebook and digital media. And no one said, this is a problem, except a few of us who studied this stuff and, and were worried about the fact that no head of state should have that kind of information on citizens of his country. Uh, but, you know, nobody listened to us at the time. So it was kind of frustrating for us. Like, we're looking at this Cambridge Analytica story break, break and we're like, oh, wow. You know, it's, it's good that people are finally taking notice of this terrible practice, but why did it take so long? Why did it take this dramatic event by this weird company that didn't actually do anything with the information because they were incompetent? Uh, you know, why, why weren't we paying attention to it when it was a real phenomenon? And are we, is this going to end with Cambridge Analytica, which, of course, is now out of business? And so, you know, what I wrote in that column was, you know, first of all, it's a much older problem than Cambridge Analytica. It's one we should have been paying attention to. And the real story here is that Facebook gave this data away to almost anybody who wanted it, did it, did so promiscuously, did so purposefully, did so as a way of building a user base for Facebook. And this was part of Facebook's strategy. And that's what we should be worried about because we don't know who else has this data. We don't have the list of the hundreds of companies some of them might be worse companies than Cambridge Analytica. Some of them might have done worse things than Cambridge Analytica hoped to do. But we don't know, and neither does Facebook, because Facebook never bothered checking. And that's, in some ways, that's one of the terrifying things about this story about Facebook. And, and in some ways, what you say in the book is, you know, the, the problem is Facebook. Right. right? The, <laughs> the problem with Facebook is Facebook yeah. and its structure, which leads me, I have two more questions yeah. for you. Um, so one is about regulation. Yeah. So what stops, what's, what's, what are the breaks on any kind of regulation? We know that this is all not right. leading to something good. So what's stopping regulatory functions here? In terms of the sorts of regulatory interventions that might make a difference to Facebook, there, we don't have a lot of tools. 
like our regulatory imagination is pretty limited here because there's never been anything like Facebook. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know anything that's ever reached 2.3 billion people around the world. Uh, 220 million Americans use Facebook and 250 million people in India use Facebook. The pure scale of it is so mind-blowing that it's almost impossible to imagine a regulatory intervention that can make a difference. So, but let me think about two that are, or talk about two that are, are ruled out often, in fact, or implemented in some ways. One is data protection. The, the notion that you and I, when we interact with digital products, we create data. We create a trail of our behavior. And in Europe now, Europeans have a stake in how that data is used. The law now says that if you're in Europe and you're using any of these services, anybody who wants to use the data that you created has to get your explicit permission, has to tell you in clear language how they're going to use that data, cannot take the data they already have and use it for some new purpose without telling you again and getting your explicit permission again. Uh, and that you have the right to scrub your data from any service that you want. That sounds like a pretty good deal. I wish that this country, and I wish Europe had had it 10 years ago, we could have avoided a lot of these problems. It may be too late for that. If that sort of legislation were to pass in the U.S. and Canada and Australia and Brazil and India, the world would be slightly better. Um, It may be a little too late for all that, but nonetheless, I think that's necessary but insufficient. It would not address so many of the other maladies that Facebook presents to us. The other thing is the idea of using antitrust or what they call competition law in in Europe to break up Facebook. Because a few years ago, Facebook bought WhatsApp, the most pervasive, most popular messaging service in the world, and bought Instagram, which is the leading competitor to Facebook. So there's really nothing close to Facebook's 2.3 billion users. Instagram has about uh, 1.3 billion users. Uh, WhatsApp has about 1.5 billion users. And these are all owned by Facebook, right? Mm. Uh, Facebook Messenger has about a billion users. So like the four of the top five social media platforms in the world are owned by Facebook. And the one that I'm not mentioning is WeChat, which only operates in China. It does not really directly compete with Facebook. So basically, Facebook is everything. No one else is close. Uh, Twitter has 330 million users around, compared to 2.3 billion that Facebook has. So it's just not even close. So given that, it was a stupid thing that we let Facebook buy Instagram, the only reasonable competition to Facebook. It was just as bad that we let Facebook buy WhatsApp, which does present some competition for Facebook in some areas of its activity. So there's a movement to try to get those two units spun off of Facebook. Facebook is scrambling to fully integrate those services as part of Facebook itself. So the distinction among WhatsApp, Instagram, and Facebook Messenger are going to disappear pretty soon. And therefore, all three of those are going to be folded into Facebook, the regular Facebook, pretty soon. So anybody who says, I never use Facebook, I only use Instagram, well, guess what? You use Facebook, and pretty soon you will have to use Facebook. And Facebook's doing this for a couple reasons. One, it's just over the long term, simpler to run one platform rather than the four. But more than that, they want to be able to say to regulators, hey, guess what? You can't break us up. We're already too fully integrated. There's nothing to break off. So I'm not optimistic that we're going to win that race against Facebook. Short of those two things, there's not much left, right? Mm -hmm. We can't in this country and in most of the world pass a law saying Facebook cannot run ads about certain things or in certain ways, right? That violates the First Amendment and many free speech regulations around the world. That's not reasonable regulation, nor would I want that 
to be the case. I don't think the state should be dictating what is allowed in these platforms. So there's not much we can do. I mean, there there are a few other sort of more radical things that have been proposed. I'm not optimistic about any of this. I think we're stuck with Facebook as it is, at its scale, for a long, long time. I think our only hope is to learn to live outside of it and better with it. And that's going to take quite a movement. It's going to take a movement to reinvigorate all the other ways that we can interact with each other and learn from each other that exist outside of Facebook. That means reinvesting in very old-fashioned institutions like science and academics, public schools, libraries, museums, public forums of all sorts, public media. Uh, you know, Those are the sorts of investments that we have allowed to atrophy over the past 40 years. And, and we can't afford to have that anymore because Facebook and, and Google have, have taken advantage of those gaps that we've created in our mind, our collective minds. And as a result, we're not able to think well about the problems that face us. So we really need to build up those institutions that'll help us build up our muscles so that would help us actually be better citizens and better people to each other. Um, and so, like, some of these things are private. I mean, some of these things like, you know, uh, religious institutions could do a far better job facilitating the life of the mind and facilitating real community engagement so we don't have to stare at our, at our screens to interact with our neighbors. Well, I think that's a great place to end. And I want to thank you again for this book because it takes seriously something that I don't think a lot of people take very seriously, um, much the same way that um, an early person that I read in media studies when I was first coming in, Neil Postman, right. um, who I know you talked about in the introduction, uh, took seriously um, the problem of television, right? right? Um, so I, I think this call to thinking is is what really drives this book uh, for me. And just thank you again for this very important and I think very useful book. It's my pleasure. And that'll do it for another installment of Modern Media. My guest today has been Professor Siva Vadianathan, a professor of media studies and the director of the Center for Media and Citizenship at the University of Virginia. His latest book, Anti-Social Media, How Facebook Disconnects Us and Undermines Democracy, was published last year by Oxford University Press. It'll be coming out in paperback later this year. You can find out more about Dr. Vadianathan and his work on our website, www.modernmediapodcast.org. And you can subscribe to Modern Media on iTunes or find us on SoundCloud, Stitcher, or Google Play. Until next time, I'm JNP, and this is Modern Media. Modern Media.